Right now, this evening, we're going to begin at verse 5, as you can tell from your handout. And I want to begin by reminding you of the symmetrical parallel, which we find in verse 5 with verse 6, a parallel that we pointed out when we considered the carefully crafted structure of the book of Obadiah as a whole. Now, that was on handout number two. We're not going to dig back and uh, look at that, but we're just going to observe here a pattern that we noticed there. And you will notice in verse 5 the phrase, Oh, how, which is the way the New American Standard translated, a phrase which appears both in verse 5 and verse 6, making a symmetrical parallel between those two verses with respect to that particular point. Now, what has been translated by two words, oh, how, in the English is actually one Hebrew word replicated in both verses, and it is the Hebrew word ache, which you can see on your handout, translated alas in other versions, and that word ache echoes the eka, which inaugurates the book of Lamentations. You may remember our discussion on that inaugural word in Jeremiah's Lamentations and its possible translation as the King James has it, alas. So it could be translated, alas, here, and would read uh, in a perfectly logical fashion, verse 5, alas, you will be ruined. Verse 6, alas, Esau will be ransacked. The duplicate here in Obadiah 5 and 6 reminds us of the lamentable sorrow which accompanies the ransacking and ruin of any nation. In contrast to her prosperity and flourishing wealth, Edom's treasures, according to these verses, will be reversed by looting, plunder, highway robbery. And I use that phrase intentionally because I'm making an indirect reference to the king's highway, which gave the marauders and invaders of Edom full access to her valuables. You remember when we looked at the map and the geography of Edom, we noticed that the King's Highway traversed the length of the nation of Edom in the ancient world. And the irony here, the irony is that the very avenue of wealth and prosperity for Edom was the road by which Edom's invaders entered the land and plundered her treasuries. Indeed, alas for Edom, on that day of enemy incursion, and that twice over, doubly emphasized to emphasize and underscore the fact, the ache repeated as the first word in verse 6, as it is the first word in the third line of verse 5. But there is 
even more symmetry crafted into the poetic expression of the prophet Obadiah here. The New American Standard has initial ifs in its translation of verse 5. You'll notice, if thieves come to you, if robbers by night, if grape gatherers. Hebrew word for these ifs is the word im, which you see on your handout, which we also found in verse 4 and commented on last time, translated in that verse by the word though, and you'll see two of those in verse 4 in your English translation. Now, as is the case in many foreign languages, there are a number of possibilities for a translation of a word. So in this case, with the word im, I'm going to suggest a translation even if. So if we use the even if phrase to translate the Hebrew im, you will note the sequential continuity between what God does in verse 4 and what the marauding agents of God's just wrath do to Edom in verse 5. For instance, even if Edom thinks she is secure, though you build high, even though you build high, even if you build high, even if you set your nest amongst the stars, even if Edom thinks she is secure in her high and self-inflated sense of invulnerability, God will bring her down, last line of verse 4. Verse 5, even if thieves, robbers like grape gatherers, pick her clean, alas, Edom will be despoiled until the looters have seized all they want. Verse 5. Verse 5 gives us a visual portrait You recall that Obadiah, verse 1, is painting a vision. He's received a vision. He is revealing it in terms of imagery, which paints a tapestry, as we indicated, an unfolding tapestry of the destruction of this nation. We have in verse 5, then, a visual portrait of a prosperous nation robbed and looted, by marauding enemies, the Babylonians, as it turned out. One author expresses this aspect of the text very well. Edom's aspirations, verses 3 and 4, are reversed by depredations, verses 5 and 6. Edom's aspirations are reversed by depredations. Her smug aspirations are reduced by predatory desperations. Now, the thieves and robbers here note the symmetry which requires synonyms here. That's one of the reasons I think that the New American Standard use of an idiom, robbers in that second line, is accurate because it fits the symmetry of what is required The thieves and robbers are Babylonian soldiers 
who play the role of looters by day and night. Now, that nighttime influence or that nighttime nuance suggests a nighttime incursion and carries the additional danger of the victims being asleep, thus unsuspecting and obviously more vulnerable. The enemy potentially more violent under the cover of darkness. Now, they come to steal. They come to steal what is most valuable, leaving the petty cash or worthless trinkets behind. When they have sufficient valuables, they depart with enough enough to satisfy their lust and their carrying pouches. The rhetorical question in line four of verse five emphasizes the despoiliation of the robber thieves, while also making it clear that enough of the valuable treasures satisfies their lust. Would they not leave some gleanings? Rhetorical question. Yes, they were. In fact, there are two rhetorical questions, as we will note. Would they not steal only until they had enough? Yes, of course they would. Like the grape gatherers or grape pickers in line five of that fifth verse, they too, that is the Babylonians, leave some things behind. What the grape pickers leave behind is called the gleanings. In the case of the vineyards, the smaller fallen fruit left behind, for it's not worth grabbing because of the large ripe fruit clusters that are already burgeoning on the vine. So grab the good stuff and leave the little stuff to fall as gleanings. Now, I've already pointed out that there are two rhetorical questions, beginning with the same Hebrew word. Your outline gives you that Hebrew word, halo. Same Hebrew word translated by the New American Standard, would. They are parallel rhetorical questions requiring the same answer. Yes, grape pickers leave some gleanings behind, like thieves leave some valuables behind. Small comfort, that is, to the ruin which ensues from the pilfering of riches and vintage. Now, I hope that you will appreciate, if you have filled out your handout, if you appreciate the symmetry, in fact, the multiple patterns of poetic symmetry that Obadiah has woven into this verse. This is an extremely complex, uh, <coughs> complexly constructed poetic uh, verse or line, a series of lines, And the way to break it down is the way that I have done so, so that you can appreciate the brilliance and the craftsmanship of Obadiah, not only as a prophet, but as an inspired poetic prophet. The Hebrew is quite vivid here, which fits once again our suggestion of a visual tapestry unfolding before us as we move from verse to verse. Now, one final comment about that Hebrew word ache, which begins line three, 
of verse 5 and is translated, Oh, how or alas. Now, I've suggested alas because of Jeremiah's book of Lamentations. Commentators have recognized that the word ache or eka appears frequently in funeral dirges, the most famous of which is David's funeral lament for Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel 1, 19-27. So let's turn back to 2 Samuel 1 for a moment. In our series on the life of David, we had the opportunity to comment on this poem, this funeral song that David sings in lamenting Jonathan and Saul, his father. But you will notice, as you find that verse 19, and then run your eye down to the last verse of David's lament, verse 27, you will find that there is a duplication, a line which reappears twice. In fact, a line which has become proverbial. What is that line? How are the mighty fallen or how have the mighty fallen? You can see it there in the second line of 19, the first line of verse 27. David brackets his song of lament for Saul and Jonathan by this term, alas, how have the mighty fallen, or alas, the mighty have fallen. He's drawing attention to the funereal dimension or the dirge-like tone of the tragic event which has occurred in the death of his king and his beloved friend. Now, Obadiah, with his exclamation, alas, you will be ruined, particularly in verse 6, may indeed contain a hint of a funeral dirge. But even more significantly, as one author points out, ache indicates a change of status, a change of status. In fact, a dramatic reversal in status, as we have been learning throughout this prophecy of Obadiah. From the vaunted Edomite arrogance portrayed in verse 3 to the utter ruin portrayed in verses 4 and 5. Indeed, alas, indeed, ache, Edom's epitaph How are the proud, mighty, and arrogant fallen, fallen indeed? Now, as we stand back from this verse, we remind ourselves that this is not the kingdom to which we belong. A kingdom of final judgment and utter destruction. In God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we belong to the kingdom which is theirs, the kingdom of eternal life, 
the kingdom of unending glory, the everlasting kingdom of heaven. That is where our citizenship resides, and I would encourage you to visualize that. That is a tapestry which unfolds without end. Ponder it. Imagine it. Think upon it. Using the imagery which has been given to you by inspired scripture, particularly Revelation 21 and 22. But Obadiah gives us a vision. Obadiah gives us an image. A kingdom which belongs to the Lord. Yahweh, as he says in verse 21. A kingdom which belongs to the sons and daughters of the Lord's only begotten and firstborn from the dead, our Savior Jesus Christ, in whom there is no arrogant pride, but rather the gracious, loving, merciful humiliation of the cross of redemption. The epitaph of the eschatological seed of Jacob, this blessed son of Isaac and Jacob and Judah, crucifixion in humiliation, but resurrection in exaltation. There, there is the eschatological reversal. Now, in filling out your handouts, you might want to note that the symmetry of ache and ekah is related to the translation, alas, and the symmetry of im, which may be translated if, is perhaps better translated even if in this uh, section, this unit. The symmetry of thieves and robbers, which more accurately represents the uh, nuance of that translation in verse 5. <clears throat> the symmetry of two rhetorical questions, the Hebrew halo which means, which implies the answer yes in both cases of the rhetorical interrogatives. And finally, the bracket that surrounds David's dirge. It's not quite an inclusio, though it's close to an inclusio, but it definitely is a poetic bracketing device. David begins as he ends, how or alas the mighty are fallen, and again at the end, alas, the mighty are fallen. Underscoring in that poem the change in status that now belongs to Jonathan and Saul. They have been changed from the land of the living to the land of the dead. Any questions about verse 5? All right, verse 6, our previous discussion of the word ache provides a natural segue to verse 6, which begins with that very word. And you will note the symmetrical parallel in the gasp of consternation at the downfall of Edom. Alas, Esau will be ransacked. Alas and alas, twice over, once in verse 5, once in verse 6, emphatically emphasizing the death of a nation, 
the change in status of the nation of Edom from alive to dead and annihilated. We have an English idiom, alas and alack, which is a symmetrical idiom emphasizing loss or sadness. We might say that we could say, translate here, alas and alack. Alas, how you will be ruined, and alack, Esau will be ransacked. The two go together in a somewhat punning idiom with the English expression, alas and alack. Now, verse 6 is the shortest verse in the book of Obadiah. It consists of five words in the Hebrew text. The middle or central word being the name Esau. Two Hebrew words, the beginning, and then in the middle the word Esau, and two words after, so that the name Esau reflects at the center of verse 6, reflects the centrality of Esau, Edom, on Obadiah's prophetic tapestry. Five brief words, five short words, five words shortest of all the words in the stanzas of Obadiah's entire prophecy. Five brief alliterative words, not all five of them, but the second and fourth word begin in the Hebrew with the same letter. They are alliterative. They begin with the letter nifal, which has the N sound in English. And there are two words, they happen to be the same, words two and four in the Hebrew, which are assonantial. That is, they have the same ending sound. They end in the oo sound in Hebrew. If we literally translated this by five words in English, this is how it would read. Alas, ransacked Esau, discovered treasures, his, in parenthesis. Now, the reason I put the his in parenthesis at the end of ransacked is because the Hebrew puts the pronoun at the end of the word. So it actually is part of the whole word, though we would translate it as two words, his treasures. All right, so we could translate literally and make sense out of it, but it would need some smoothing out because of the way we express particularly the pronoun, the possessive pronoun here, his. Nonetheless, we could do five for five. Ache, alas, Ransack Esau, middle word, third word in order, discovered treasures, his attached to treasures because they go together in the Hebrew, so we'd put it in parentheses beside treasure, and we wouldn't count it as a real word because it's part of one word. Well, that's how we could do it if we were trying to be precise to reflect the five short Hebrew words of verse 6. Now, verse 6 completes in parallel fashion verse 5. What the thieves and robbers of the former verse pillaged are the hidden treasures of verse 6. 
what the thieves of verse 5 came to burgle are searched out in verse 6. What is stolen in verse 5 is ransacked in verse 6. And the you, the you in verse 5 becomes Esau by name in verse 6. So what he's done is he's contrasted, he's crafted a relationship between the crisis of the looting and ransacking, and he's enlarged upon it by expanding the you to a name of personal address with Esau at the center of that line in order to draw your attention directly to the subject of the robbery, the thievery, the looting, the ransacking, the pillaging, etc., the leaving the low-hanging fruit on the ground, etc. Edom's treasures are looted, robbed, burgled, ransacked, pillaged, all of the above and more. Edom's treasures. The proceeds from her trade policies. The wealth of the nations transported by way of her caravan routes from Africa and Arabia, perhaps even India, to Mesopotamia and beyond. And, and please note vice versa, the riches and treasures of Mesopotamia and beyond flowing over the trade routes of Edom on the way to Arabia and Africa and perhaps even beyond that. When we noted the copper industry in Edom in our first presentation, we noted how wealthy that made this nation. That attracted trade of all kinds so that the caravan routes that crisscross Edom, including the, the ancient King's Highway that went all the way up to Damascus, that route flowed with wealth and riches, spice and cloth and ivory and all kinds of goods which came through the nation of Edom. Trade was the basis of her economy. Trade, buying, selling, providing her copper industrial goods for the wealth of the world. And that wealth came to this nation, making Edom, the descendants of Esau, we might say in the vernacular, filthy rich. And no matter where those treasures had been secreted, but no matter where those riches had been hidden, whether in the caves of the mountain slopes of the Arabah or the crags and niches of the Negev, Obadiah's narrative of the drama of Edom's plundering here in these verses exposes every hiding place, uncovers every stash, opens up every ensconced treasure trove. Babylonian robbers strip every treasure, all riches, 
all her hoarded revenue, strip Edom bare of her vaunted wealth. And what is more, every Edomite is destroyed. No remnant remains. Edom est delenda. Edom is destroyed. Annihilated, as verses 9 and 10 will point out. Whereas the common destroying nation, Babylon, devastates Judah, but carries off a remnant to exile, no such remnant survives of Edom. The denouement of the duplicate drama reminds us once more of the election according to grace. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. A remnant by electing grace of Jacob in the line of Judah, no remnant by no grace to Esau in the line of Edom. The antithesis is clear. Judah shall live again. Edom shall die and never rise again. We belong to the kingdom of the remnant according to the election of grace because we belong to the elect king of grace of that kingdom who is the son of Jacob. Son of Judah, Son of God. In his election, we are elect. In his rich grace, we are rich in grace. In his eternal kingship, we are heirs to an eternal kingdom. In his eschatological death to life reversal, We are eschatologically alive from the dead, both now and forevermore. Edom did die, never to rise again. The elect remnant, our Lord Jesus Christ, has died and is raised to life again. We follow in his train, pressed down into his crucifixion, one with him in his death on the cross, at the same time pressed down to him, unto him in his resurrection, one with him in his bursting the bands of the grave. Once more, we are reminded of the eschatological reversal in history, the reverse of death with resurrection unto eternal life in a single man now becomes the barometer to measure the ages and the faith of everyone in those ages that succeed him. All history lies under the judgment of that second eschatological man who did what no other human being ever did, took captivity captive, allowed himself to be bound unto death and buried away in a tomb. 
But three days hence, he was no longer in that tomb. He was raised again to life and ascended into the, into heaven to sit at the right hand of God his Father. That is the hinge point of all of history. No, 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 no. What happens in November on election day? No, 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 no. Whatever happened in the Roman Empire when that kingdom collapsed? No, no, no. Not even what happened in 1517. The hinge point of history is in the person of Jesus Christ. It is in the Son of God incarnate. That's where the ultimate and unending, eternal, and never-to-be-canceled reversal occurred. Do you want life? Come to Jesus. Do you want eternal life? Come to Jesus. Do you want resurrection life? Come to Jesus of Nazareth, who is vindicated and confirmed to be the Son of God with power. That is the life that makes the difference And your life is no different apart from him. Right, so that on your outline, you would have the center word of verse 6 being Esau. And Edom's treasures, the wealth of the nations flowing into her treasuries by way of her caravan routes. And the antithesis, which I... Uh, lined out, Judah shall live again, Edom shall die never to rise again. Thus far, verses 5 and 6. We'll take a break now and return to discuss verse 7 after you've had a time to stretch. Now, verse 7 which presents a twofold transitional shift, one rhetorical and the other situational. The rhetorical shift we previously noted in our comments on the structure of the prophecy. Again, that structural discussion in handout number two. But this evening we observe that at verse 7, we leave behind the parallel symmetry of duplicates in verses 1 and 2. And what are the duplicate words that occur in verses 1 and 2? Here I am forcing you to look back at those two verses again and pick out the words which are duplicated. What do you find? The nations, right. So, there on your outline, the parallels in 1 and 2, the word nations or goyim in Hebrew is repeated. Verses 3 and 4, we have another duplication. What do you see there? No. Go ahead, Art. Bring down down in verse 3. That's Edom speaking. That's the direct speech of the Edomites. And bring down who's speaking in verse 4. 
Anyone? The Lord is speaking in verse 4. So the antithesis there. But the duplication, again, or the symmetry and parallelism of the phrase. Verses 5 and 6. Oh, how? Oh, how, or alas, as as we've translated the ache, but the oh, how is fine. And verses 7 and 8. What do you see repeated in those two lines? Those two verses, I should say. Nope. Seven and eight. The last line in each verse. The word understanding. Alright, so the symmetry of the word understanding, but... In verse 8, we add something which will appear again in the next verse. So what do we see added in verse 8 that will be repeated in verse 9? From the mountain? From the mountain of Esau. Yes, the name Esau is picked up in verse uh, 8 and 9. So, in other words, in verse 8, we have a symmetry with a word in verse 7, but we also have a symmetry with a word, or you could say a phrase, in the next verse, verse 9. And that's where this next pattern occurs. Because in verse 9... We're going to find a word that is present there that is also duplicated in verse 10, but then something else is added in verse 10 to pull along the, shall we say, seamless web, the seamless narrative of the poetic expansion. Now, this uh, replication uh, by parallelism will come to an end in verse 7 and 8. And we will have a new structural pattern that we pointed out in our second handout. And that is the linking of the verses from uh, verse 8 and 9, 9 to 10, 10 to 11, 11 to 12, and so on until we get to verse 13. And then we will have a repeated sequence. In fact, an explosion of a sequence of the Hebrew word yom or day until we come to verse 16. And then we will resume this pattern of a word in one verse being duplicated in the next verse and the word in the next verse being duplicated in the next verse until we get to the end of the prophecy in verse 20 with verse 21 being uniquely set apart from the whole pattern. All right, so what do we call this process by which one verse adds a word which is duplicated in a subsequent verse. It is that term concatenation. Concatenation. It's a concatenation device, meaning that he builds a chain link fence. He builds a link between verse 8 and verse 9, and he continues with a link between verse 9 and verse 10, 
He continues with a link between verse 10 and verse 11 and so on until he gets to verse uh, 13. And then he changes to a, a patterned linkage of the word day and then breaks back again to his concatenation pattern in verses 16 through 20. And then in 21 does something particularly unexpected and unique because he's focusing in 21 on the unexpected and unique revelation or declaration of the kingdom which belongs to the Lord. Right, all of this to underscore how Obadiah has tightly chain-linked his prophetic vision of the imminent and eschatological future of Esau and Jacob. Now, if you've forgotten all the words that are in this concatenation pattern, go back to the second handout and if you wrote them out in your, and have them in your notes, then you'll find them. If you want me to repeat them, I'll, <clears throat> I'll repeat them uh, next time if you wish. Anyway, it's there in the text as you see this switch. So we have in verse 6, between verse 6 and verse 7, we have a shift, a rhetorical shift. We're moving in verse 7 to a concatenation pattern. We're moving away from that strict symmetry pattern that he's had in verses 1 through 6. All right, so I said there are two shifts. There's the rhetorical shift from strict symmetrical parallelism to concatenation. The other shift is situational. What do I mean by a situational shift? Well, verse 7 inaugurates an ironic deception of the deceiver. An ironic deception of the deceiver. And there is delicious irony here. There's a delicious ironic flavor to the reversal, as I shall explain as we go. You will notice that the word for deceive in this word, in this verse, see it there in the middle of verse 7, you will note that the word for deceive in verse 7 is the same word for deceive in verse 3. Glance up to verse 3 and find the word deceive or deceived the verb in the first line of that third verse. There in verse 3, it is Edom or Esau's narcissistic and arrogant heart. Here in verse 7, it is the deceiver being deceived, Edom Esau being tricked by her close treaty allies. Esau's vaunted pride leaves her vulnerable to the betrayal of her close friends. So caught up is she in her own self-assured arrogance that when her closest companions trick, deceive, and betray her, she is dumbfounded, nonplussed, utterly flummoxed. Note, there is no understanding in her. Last line of verse 7, as Obadiah declares in the parenthetical phrase, which ends this stanza. Here is Esau, and this is the delicious irony. Here is Esau 
being Jacob. For what does Yaakov mean in Hebrew? Yaakov means deceiver, trickster, deceiver, or one who is also tricked. Esau playing the deceiver, yet being deceived in reverse. Esau deceiving himself with pride, reversed to a fool, a silly, dead fool. Esau turned into a fool by those who trick and deceive her. Poetic justice? Indeed. Divine poetic justice, and that with a delicious twist of sovereign irony. Well, who are these agent tricksters who have made a fool out of Esau, Edom? The verse is replete. They are Edom's allies, or men of your covenant, as the New American Standard Margin literally translates the Hebrew text. One of these allies is certainly Babylon, as verse 11 makes clear. Glance down at verse 11. How does verse 11 make clear that one of Edom's allies were the Babylonians? Mark? You were one of them. One of whom? The people who came to Yes, the one that destroyed Jerusalem, correct? You were one of them. So who are the them? The them are the Babylonians. So verse 11 is making clear that Babylon was one of the men of your covenant or your allies. For Edom joined Nebuchadnezzar at the invasion, siege, and destruction of Jerusalem as an ally of the coalition that he put together that included the Edomites, amongst others, in 586 B.C. That very ally of Edom, Babylon, that very ally, not 33 years later, destroyed Edom, its former covenant partner. The self-deceiver deceived. The traitorous trickster traitorously tricked. The arrogant destroyer destroyed in its base egocentric foolishness. Now, in this verse, Obadiah details three specific aspects of the destruction of the Edomite kingdom by her former covenant treaty partner, namely the Babylonians. First, the invasion of her territory by her former ally will send her fleeing to her borders for refuge and escape. After all, when the invader invades, where do you head? You head for the hills. You head for the borders. Second, that nation with whom she had signed a covenant treaty of peace, and the word is shalom in the Hebrew of this text, that nation with whom Edom had signed a covenant treaty of shalom, that nation will turn on her in a war which will completely overpower her even in her vaunted craggy fortress cities. The flight for life, 
The flight to the borders will result from the overwhelming pressure and force of her enemy, her once-upon-a-time ally. And third, those who ate her bread, a reference to the meal of confirmation following a covenant treaty ratification. Those who broke bread with her in apparent mutual friendship will now lay ambushes for her, will lay traps to snare her fleeing multitudes and cut them down in their panicked flight to the borders. Those who broke the bread of shalom with her will devour her in horrific war. The shift in verse 7 is more than the reversal of Edom's story by looting and pillaging, verses 5 and 6. It is the betrayal of pacts and treaties. It is the brutal treachery of eating her bread in common friendship, yet turning that friendship into ambush and all-out war. The dramatic end of the kingdom of Edom is the end of a fool, a proud, arrogant, self-deceived fool. Babylon played Edom for a fool and made promises to the fool, entered treaties with the fool, broke the so-called bread of peace with the fool, only to destroy the fool with a perfect scheme to snare and troll that fool in its own ego, that puffed-up ego, which was the fool's very downfall and destruction. The fool, trapped in the same pit she dug for the lowlife, she deemed fools and deplorables. The fool, snared in the same web of deceit, she wove to enmesh the network of falsehood she spun to weave a cocoon of invulnerability around herself, her own arrogant self. The fool become even more the fool by her own depraved hand. The poetic justice which brought foolish Edom still works. Works in its inevitable, its inexorable justice to bring all blustering, elitist, lying fools down. Down. Our own sinful foolishness was brought down. Our own sinful foolishness was brought down with a blood-stained body from a nail-scarred cross. There, upon that tree, one all-wise God, the Son, became a fool in our place. He bore the mockery of a fool, endured the scorn of a fool, suffered the death of a fool, lay lifeless at the foot of that cross, bearing, yea, incarnating the destiny of a fool. And he did it all for us, who are fools by nature. He is omniscient wisdom by nature, became vicariously the opposite 
He who was omniscient wisdom by nature became vicariously the opposite, a fool for the sake of fools. Oh, the foolishness of the cross, the sublime foolishness of the cross. But in this fool, in this fool, this fool for sinners, this sinless one who suffers for sinful fools, in this vicarious fool, the wisdom and the power of God. You belong to this one, this Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Indeed, you belong to God in Christ, who became a fool for you, that you might become in Christ a participant in the wisdom and power of God. Forgiven of all your foolhardy sins, washed of all your foolish deceit in his precious blood, to live, to live anew in the power of his resurrection life, the wisdom and power and knowledge of God. There is the end of your foolishness. Not Edom's death spiral, but the life ascent, the unwinding upward thread of life in his wisdom, his holiness, his truth, his grace, in a heavenly life spiral where fools are no more. Neither is there any more deceit, nor lies, arrogant, insouciant lies are no more. Deathly pride is no more, for Christ is all and in all forevermore. you have any questions about verse 7? You should have on your handout, if you wish, the answers to the first transitional shift, rhetorical and situational. The parallels in 1 and 2, of course, nations. 3 and 4, bring down. 5 and 6, oh how or alas. 7 and 8, understanding plus the word Esau. The beginning of the pattern of concatenation. The irony of verse 3, the word deceive. Who are the deceivers? Namely, the Babylonians. And the nature of the destruction of Edom was the rush to the borders, peace which became war, and broken bread which becomes the devouring of the nation of Edom. If you have no questions, let's bow in prayer, but I'll ask you to remain in your seats afterwards for a few moments. Father, we are a body of fools. By nature, foolish in our miserable sinfulness, foolish in our desire for destruction rather than life, foolish in our hostility and enmity against you. We are a body of fools by nature. And that is the reason that your son was willing to become a fool for the sake of saving fools like us. 
We thank you that Obadiah reminds us of this foolhardiness all the way back to the arrogance and foolhardiness of the Edomite nation. Yea, O Lord, there are still nations like this. There are still people like this that lead nations in our world today. And we leave them to your justice, poetic and otherwise. But Lord, we cling to the one who became a fool for our sake. We cling to your beloved son, who was willing to be incarnated in the likeness of a fool, so that we might be regenerated in the likeness of the wisdom and power of God. Thank you for such amazing grace. Thank you for such a wonderful son, your eternally begotten. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. For indeed, he is no fool though he became one for our sake. He is your glory, your beloved, the very wisdom and knowledge and power of God unto salvation. We thank you for him, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.